Ellie realised that silence arrives when you know too much, but you don't know what to say, what sound to make, whether you should plea or cry, weep or attack, flee or fight. Silence is the anticipation of what the next noise will be, no matter how big or small it is. Anyone's gonna notice this. Sorry, like, I don't know what to do. Ellie, stop that this instant! I don't mean to offend, but this is a holiday for Ellie oh, and I. Please respect that. And I will respect you as a guest. I've told them everything. I've told them about your cuts, your bruises, the venom behind your words, and most importantly, your failures as a mother. And if anything, that is thanks to you. That's the trailer for Cherub Head. Hello and welcome to the Cinema Australia podcast. My name is Matthew Eels. In this episode, I'm joined by WA-based filmmaker Sarah Legg, whose new film Cherub Head is one of the most unique beautiful, intriguing and thought-provoking Australian films you will ever see. It truly is quite unlike anything else I've ever seen, I know that's for sure. Here's the synopsis. Marie Annette, a virtuous socialite, invites orphan Ellie to a holiday home in the hopes of adopting her. However, when Sophie comes to stay at the home on account of a family research program, things quickly head south. That's a very basic plot outline, but Sarah's description of her film during this interview is much more in-depth. To say that Sarah is an exciting new talent would be an understatement. When you get the chance to see Cherub Head, you will see a filmmaker who refuses to play by the rules and work within the confines of conventional cinema. And if you get the chance to see Cherub Head multiple times, like I have, you'll be just as excited to see what Sarah comes up with next. In this interview, Sarah discusses her beginnings as a filmmaker and the creative support she received from her encouraging parents. Uh, She discusses the origins of Cherubed and how it's influenced by Machiavelli. And she also shares some great behind-the-scenes stories too. Cherubed will be screening at the Backlot Perth on October 29 at 7pm, but uh, keep an eye on cinemaaustralia.com.au for further release announcements. Anyway, enjoy. Sarah, thank you for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It's so great to have you with us. Thank you. It's actually so great to be on here. I listen to the podcast quite often, so it's great to be a part of the WA community and to be on and to have a chat with you. Oh, that's great. Great to hear. Um, It's a pleasure for me to be chatting with you because I'm such an admirer of your talents as a filmmaker. Um, I got to know you a little bit more uh, uh, about your filmmaking journey during the chaos of all of those sold out screenings at the WA Made (laughs) Film Festival. Um, So I'm looking forward to getting to know you uh, a bit more during this episode. Uh, Firstly, congratulations on Cherub Head. It's a terrific film and, and I can't wait for everyone to see it. 
Thank you. Yeah, we're um, still on our festival run. So thanks to the premiere at WA Made, we had all of those sold out screenings, even during COVID and the yeah. lockdowns, which was crazy. And it was very stressful because yeah. we didn't know day to day if we were going to end up screening the film and having our international premiere that we'd all been wanting so bad. Um, but we have now, we've now had a couple of other screenings around WA and we're now looking to Europe and internationally for screenings to achieve those premieres. So um, I think there's one, there's one more screening that's going to be happening of Cheruped this year in WA. It's going to be at the back lot, October 29. Um, so there's still going to be an opportunity there, but afterwards it's looking a little bit, <laughs> um, it's looking a little bit, it looks like that might be it. So, um, yeah, hopefully with that last screening, we're going to have people coming and finally seeing the film, which is going to be fantastic. Yeah, and uh, just to give our, uh, you know, national and international listeners a bit of context to that story, um, we played the film at WA Made Film Festival right on the week when Martin McGowan announced 50% uh, capacity rules over here. Mm. But this film seemed to be the film that could. It was uh, the little film that could because uh, no matter how many restrictions we were under, we just kept selling tickets to this thing. And um, uh, we ended up playing it across three cinemas uh, from memory. I thought it was four. Uh, four was cinemas. There you four. go. Four cinemas. <laughs> unbelievable unreal yeah it was a great experience and at palace cinemas too so it was yeah right in yeah. Perth, right it was yeah. yeah it was great um so now you just mentioned then uh when people will be able to see it at the back lot but that's only if you're in perth and then uh at the film what what's going to happen with the film after that are you, are you looking at a, an online release yeah, so we're still on the lookout for a distributor um, because we are still having our festival run and we haven't had our European or um, American premieres. So we're still um, not going to be releasing it pro publicly until we have those. Um, but after that, I'm definitely looking to an online release. There are lots of people from um, around the globe, especially after being a part of the Septimius Awards. There have been a lot of people internationally who have wanted to see the film. So right. it's about making sure that everyone can get that opportunity and um, can we can finally show the film to the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think this film is going to play exceptionally well internationally because it does Thank have you. it does have quite a, a a European kind of feel about it, uh, you know, with the aesthetics yeah. of the film. And uh, anyway, we'll, we'll talk about uh, uh, Cherub Head in a moment. But um, as usual with this podcast, I want to uh, start by going back to the beginning of your filmmaking journey. Um, during those Cherub Head screenings at the WA Made Film Festival, I saw your elated parents beaming with pride <laughs> before and after the film. It was beautiful to see. Uh, have your parents always been so supportive of your filmmaking aspirations? My parents have been extremely supportive from very when I was very, very young. And people do often find it quite um, counterintuitive because I tell them that they're both scientists. Yeah. They're like, what? Why? Well, then why are you so creative? <laughs> and um, I really think it's because creativity comes in all forms and creativity is never only directly linked to the arts even though it is most predominantly shown in their creativity can be applied to everything it's just a mentality it's a it's a philosophy even it's a way that you approach life and problem solving and that was something that I really um, am grateful for that I had a grapple of from when I was very young um, we would like I would be one of those kids that would always have put on like plays 
and shows in the living room for the family when everyone would come around and um, I have all the home videos <laughs> um, of like little films that I had made when I was when I was younger and then when iPads came out and when iMovie came out I was all over that <laughs> and I had plenty of iMovies too so it's it's never um, I'm really grateful that this house has never been one that shuts down ideas mm. even if they have turned out to not be good because um, all ideas should be explored and um, it was it's been a really beautiful experience um, having them to support me and stand by me um, when I've achieved and when I haven't yes, because yeah, at the end of the day it's all a journey right yeah and it's so important to have that parental support um, exactly you know, for, yeah. for creative people uh, did you and your uh, parents or, or your family watch movies together growing up we have a big, big collection of films and um, we always got the, we always got DVDs. We didn't, we um, weren't super big on digital USBs. Like we liked having the hard copy, the physical ownership of a film. Um, and we, I was saying to the casting crew yesterday that we're, we're too scared to chuck out a film. So we have a collection of all these films that we do like, and then we have a collection of all of these films that we don't like, but we just, we because we don't want to chuck out any films, we just keep them there. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and so it's it's really special having, you know, the I'm sure lots of families know like the um, pizza movie night, yeah. and all those lovely traditions yes. um, but definitely been brought up with films definitely. yeah that, that's great <laughs> that you have all of those all of that physical media um, exactly you know right? so many people just put it into a box and, and chucked it into landfill but exactly uh, I, I don't I, know I think there's something special about holding it and having yes. it physically yes. it's like a book right like that's I know right. a lot of people are like we like having hard copies of books there's something about having it in a physical space where when it's digital it feels like it can just go yes. and you can you can lose it um yeah. like a file that you can accidentally chuck into your trash and then it's gone that's right that's right well what were some of the, your favorite movies to watch together as a family oh good question um we've definitely been on a journey um because my m half of my family really loves like the um you're really good blockbusters and your Spielbergs yes. and all of those nice classic American films yeah. and then the other half of the family really loves avant-garde French films <laughs> <laughs> so there's always been a real conflict um or just it doesn't always have to be French films also international films and um just also American films that are a bit bit wacky and want to tell something bold yes. um I will always remember the experience when um we sat and we watched Synecdoche New York for the first time uh, yes and <laughs> and by the end of the film two of us were crying and two two of two people had just left the room <laughs> <laughs> they'd given up they, that. yeah yeah mum was already you know having a bath and just trying to calm down from what the heck she just saw because yeah. she hated it so much and then and then um my dad and I were just sitting there crying because it had hit such an emotional core so it's always been um conflicting yeah. but 
a classic that we have always loved is um, Star Wars. Oh, great. And um, we've always, I think, I think every year we have sat down and we've binged the entire thing. <laughs> but it used to be, it used to be six films and we used to be able to do it. Yes, like, and now it's nine. <laughs> but now that it's nine, it's yeah. actually getting quite... <laughs> It's getting a bit difficult. Um, and then and then um, we just got like the box set of the Clone Wars as well. So that now we're arguing, well, do we include the Clone Wars? Do we include like all of the spin-off films? Yeah, like, and the series. This... You've got the series yeah. there as well. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Mandalorian. <laughs> exactly. You'd need so to put the binge a is a really months. expanding <laughs> quite rapidly. And I think we're all terrified, especially with like, you know, Obi-Wan and everything, yeah. Kenobi coming yeah. out. So yeah. Yeah. it's, um, I, I don't think we're quite going to be able to just sit down and binge it all in the same way that we used to. But yes. um, it, it's always, you know, it's always a family favorite yeah uh, was there a moment there where you knew that you wanted to be a filmmaker I have I've always wanted to be an actor so yeah. I started with roots in theater um because I had quite a few family members who had been to who had done well in theater and acting and I whenever I watched a film I thought what I loved about the film was the acting which was totally true. I have mm -hmm. always loved performances and I have always loved storytelling. And, but when I was younger, the storytelling and um, the performances were always, well, you see the actors on screen, right? Yeah. And that's the only part that you really see. And so I thought, oh, I want to be one of those guys. Mm -hmm. I want to do the acting. I want to do the storytelling. But then after, you know, actually acting um, and being a part of the process, it's I've come to a place where it was actually during Cheriped. Mm -hmm. When I was acting in Cheriped, I realised, Oh no, I don't actually be like being, I love storytelling and I love performances, but I don't like being on the other side of the camera. I don't like being in front of the camera. Yeah. I like being behind the camera. I like being in control of the story and I like bringing out people's performances, yeah. not doing it myself. And so I think that was a very, um, although I've always known that this was the area that I was wanting to be in, Chiroped was really a good um, step for me in realizing, no, you were right, but not quite right. Right. <laughs> That's very, very That's interesting. Fine. Very interesting mm. because you, you are very good in uh, Cherubhead as an actor. And, Thank and, you. You know, the film's terrific. So, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Yeah, um, I, I think with the new films that I'm doing now, it's been very liberating and I, I really feel in my element because I get to focus on the story. There's something with acting where you're focusing on the performance yeah. and you're not focusing on the actual narrative and the actual storytelling. That's It's a really subtle differentiation but it's something that when you're actually there doing it you can really feel mm -hmm. yeah. um so yeah yeah that's been a big step in my journey for sure mm. did you hang out with other creative people and uh, you know like-minded artists uh, at school and uh, you know were they a part of your clique in your social circle yeah so I was um I went to John Curtin which was an art school so um <laughs> was there were lots of um amazing creative beautiful people um but it, it was a really interesting journey for me because um again with my parents being so 
academic and scientific mm-hmm. i i was in a really weird like limbo zone that i found hard to i i could i could never really be truly um I could never really truly feel like I could belong in those really artistic creative groups mm. because there was something about me and the way that I thought that it was too analytical. Um, so I actually, for a lot of my high school years, I actually did research and I ended up going into down the academic path of um, studying performance and studying drama mm. um, to the point where I wrote a research paper with Professor Robin Pascoe that was published in the Australian Dramas Drama Educa- Educators magazine. So it was, I was very much um, isolated and in a world where it was just my brain and analyzing performances. Yeah. Um, whereas the mentality at the time was very much get out of your head, get into your body mm. when it came to being an actor and performing. Yeah. So um, there was definitely a disconnect there, but um, I still definitely, there were so many beautiful creative people who I still am great friends with yeah. um, that really helped me. Um, for example, Oscar Prosser, who was the score composer for Cherub Head. Oh, wow. um, he also went to the same school and we met and we clicked instantly because we both had a great passion for our different mediums, but we both got along well as people. Yeah. Yeah. So forming those those friendships that are strong and that are going to last was really a great experience for me. Yeah, and it's so good to have that uh, that network of of friends around you. Um, yeah, yeah the, the score is so good in in Cherubet. I watched it again yesterday, and yeah, the, oh, wow. the score really stands out. Yeah, yeah. No, he's a very talented composer, um, and he's the same age as me. So oh, it's wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. You you all seem to be so far ahead of your years, including these young actors. Um, but you Thank were just talking then about uh, about uh, the acting side of it and uh, mm. learning about acting. What's your? Have you ever had any formal filmmaking training? What What's your education there as a as a yeah as a director? So yeah, I did a lot of theatrical training and I did a lot of acting training. The actual film training was as far as just ATAR Media. Um. Mm. I, I did ATAR Media. I um, really did, like, I fundamentally disagreed with the way that film was being taught in that educational space. Yeah. Um, and it was actually, I remember talking, it was a rough year when I was talking to educators and I was talking to principals and I was saying, this is not right. This this doesn't align with um, what film is and how film should be taught as a practice. Mm-hmm. Film is a craft. It's not something where um, you need to meet a set of criteria. Art forms are free flowing. Yeah, um, yeah. Risks should be, because I, again, with my upbringing, I, I don't like to shy away from risks. Yeah. If there's a risk, I want to take <laughs> it and I want to take it as, and I want to face it as quickly as I can so that I can learn from it. Mm. And that is my, my way of learning is by going, um, I guess, you know, diving straight into something um, and then figuring out from there how it actually works. Because I think the worst thing that you can do as, as someone in a career is to, and what my biggest fear is, is to, um, is for there to be a problem that is just in the shadows and it doesn't jump out at me mm-hmm. until, you know, 20, 30 years down the track. Um, and so I was bringing that up with them and um, I was met to cold shoulders 
So it was um, what I wanted as soon as I graduated was I wanted complete creative freedom and I wanted to create something. I wanted to create something. And that's what Cheripet was. It was um, having full creative control, taking as many risks as I could (laughs) to make something, to make a statement. And um, I couldn't be happier with the path that I've taken. And I'm... I always have and I still am following the philosophy that the best way that you can learn films is by making films. Yes, which, yes, terrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's so good. You can see from, you know, yeah, like um, so many famous filmmakers have not had a formal education in film. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's right. Is, is there, are there any examples that you could give us about, um, uh, you know, something that uh, maybe that they were trying to teach you that you didn't quite agree with? Uh, yeah, um, there was... I should remember some of these. Um, there was, I remember there was one moment where um, I was wanting to, um, so the film that, the short film that we made, were making for ATAR was Poppy. Um, and what I wanted is I wanted a lot of colourful visual symbolism. Yeah. And I wanted the colourful visual symbolism of red to be able to show the emotional state. Mm. And um, I remember there was, um, my teacher who was kind of she was she came and she had a look at the scene and um she said um she said you're trying to create tension in this scene right and I was like yes I am trying to create tension in this scene um and I and I the way that I was creating tension was um there's the visual symbolism and imagery of red wool and um, wrapping yourself around in red yarn. So there's this character that feels um, very conflicted and as a result they're covered in red yarn and they can't get out of it. Like the string is all going around them and they feel they literally are trapped by the physical space, but the yarn is so soft Mm. and it seems so non-threatening. It's not chains, it's not not spikes, it's nothing that's going to hurt them and yet they feel trapped. Mm. And that was what I was trying to show visually. And um, she looked past all that (laughs) and she said, okay, if you want to create tension, then you need to have a kettle boiling. (laughs) And I was like, what? (laughs) And she was like, the way to create tension is that as the kettle is boiling more and more, it like gets more intense, but then you don't turn off the kettle and then that's going to create more tension. It's such a cliche. it was, it was such a cliche. It was void of everything that I was building in terms of my story. A kettle had nothing to do with the story or the narrative. It was just, are you creating tension? You should put in a kettle. Mm. And, and so then when I got my marks back for the, for the point, she was, she marked me down saying that the tension wasn't working. Oh. And I was like, wow. <laughs> um, and so I, in that sense, it's like, great, I'd love to know how the tension isn't working, yeah. but if all that you're going to say is to give me a kettle because that's what you know, it's, yes. it, it just, yeah, it was little moments like that. Yeah. Um, I wish I had more examples, but I can't think of any off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah, no, I, I do hear these stories quite frequently mm-hmm. from, from yeah. filmmakers about how, frustrate, uh, how frustrating, you know, their film studies can be. Um, exactly. Quite a few people have told me that they've left their courses halfway through yeah. because they just didn't find it creatively rewarding yeah. enough for them. Exactly. And I have, it's been, you know, like going 
a film fest and talking to um and also even at the Septimius Awards talking with filmmakers and telling them no I haven't had any of the formal training Mm -hmm. um it's it's opened up conversations about how film is taught and how film should be taught how film should be considered like it's so interesting that film and photography used to be considered more of a science because of the actual the actual logistics of creating film and so now it's like well is it still like that or is it now more of an art form should we be teaching it more like we teach painting and how we teach um all of these other creative crafts um because it is it has always been in that weird limbo zone hasn't it yeah yeah and, um, you know, as regular listeners of this podcast will know, uh, when I'm chatting with filmmakers like Creve Stenders or Alex Proyas or uh, Penelope McDonald recently, who all went to afters, it seemed like their time, uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s was much more creatively liberating than it is now. Um, and I'm not sure why, but maybe that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> but, um, I would love uh, to, yeah. Yeah, and I'll come with more stories. <laughs> yes. Uh, I want to talk <laughs> I, about, uh, I just want to talk, yeah, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Just after those, after those experiences, you tr- you don't want to dwell on them. You just want to kind of forget about them. Yes, so that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the best thing to do because I, I could imagine some people would dwell on them. But, exactly, uh, you're right. right. The best thing to do is just go out there and do it. And, and exactly. Don't yourself. let it bog you down. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So I do want to talk about Poppy for a moment because yeah. uh, that was your only short film before Cheriped. Usually uh, a filmmaker will have, you know, a huge swag of short yeah. films before they head into their feature. Um, yeah. So tell us a bit about Poppy. Is that something that you're, is it a film that you're proud of at the moment? Is, is it a, is, do you watch it regularly? Do you reflect back on it? Interesting. Um, no. Mm. <laughs> is the short answer. Yeah. Um, look, I'll always, I mean, I still even look at, you know, movies that I made when I was like six and yeah. seven. Um, so I, I do always look back on it. Um, Poppy had terrible audio. Right as I assume all student films are because you don't know what you're doing and you have really bad gear. And um, (laughs) um, so the actual, like, again, if we were to consider film to be like the art side and the actual like logistical, more um, technical side, the technical side was not great. Um, And we did actually want to try and submit it to festivals like WA made but I just looked at it and I was like no that's just not gonna get in that's just not gonna meet it at all Mm. um but in terms of the if only you would put a bloody kettle in it (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly um that'll that'll be the feedback (laughs) from the festival um no so it on the technical side it wasn't quite there but on the creative side I am actually very proud of it it was um we used a lot the there's basically no there's no dialogue from the main character Mm. so it was a lot of visual storytelling in terms of movement and again using the yarn and using those visual symbols as that idea of entrapment um feeling entrapped when it it feels so it's like it's the feeling of entrapment when you um everything looks to be fine that's what we were trying to convey um and I am really happy with where that film took me um and I'm really glad that it gave me the confidence to be able to make a feature Mm. um because Poppy naturally we were trying for a short film 
and then it clocked in at half an hour mm -hmm. and I was like well I only need to do one more of these and I have a feature yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know I'm not too far off yeah. so I may as well just make a feature because there's that horrible limbo zone for short films where it's at like the 20-30 minute mark when it's not it's not a feature but it's not a short so no one's gonna take it yeah is it a long <laughs> short or a short long Exactly right. Um, and so I went smack bang with my first short into that limbo zone. So um, I decided, um, and, and when it comes to the stories that I wanted to tell, I thought it was better to go bigger than to go smaller. So it was it was the stepping stone that I needed. And I'm really appreciative of that. Yeah, um, yeah. We did have it on YouTube. I might chuck it on YouTube again. Yeah, I'd love to see it. I'd love to check it out. <laughs> Um, so, so, you know, speaking of all that symbolic imagery and, uh, and all of that stuff, uh, let's get into talking about Cheruped here. Fantastic. Um, uh, in my pre-recorded intro, uh, I give a very brief synopsis of Cheruped, but, mm -hmm. um, I'd love for you to give us a, a, a bit of a deeper idea of what this story is about uh, from your Beautiful. point of view. Yeah, so um, Cheruphead is inspired by um, the ideas of Nicola Machiavelli and his book, The Prince. It's not a straight adaptation, but the ideas came to me from reading the book and the story came from reading up about some of his ideas and playing around with them. So um, if you, if um, I'm sure you've, uh, so you've told them the synopsis. So there's yes. the three characters, Ellie, Sophie, and Marie. Um, if you take that and you apply that to the actual book, The Prince, um, Marie is the prince, so is the monarch or is the conqueror. Um, Sophie is the rebellious population or the population that has been conquered but was originally a free people. And Ellie is the population that has been conquered but was originally oppressed by a different dictator. Mm -hmm. So um, those characters represent those three um, uh, communities or those three um, aspects of the book. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the film, it's actually exploring, okay, in these situations, how is Ellie going to react to Marie? How is Sophie going to react to to Marie and I think what was really what really hit me emotionally when it came to um, the book The Prince was the fact that politics was tied in so intricately to how humans think and the human condition mm -hmm. and um, I, I really feel um, it's been interesting listening to how people have viewed the film and how they perceive the character Sophie because Sophie was one of my favorite characters in that it's um, she represents the population who were originally free and then were oppressed mm -hmm. and um, the techniques that Marie uses in the film in order to actually turn Sophie from a rebellious free spirit into someone who is oppressed through um, not through punishment but through reward mm -hmm. um, so it's exploring those dynamics and it's, it's exploring what it's like um, to be to find yourself to find your feet and um, in, in the case of Ellie who was our lead how to um, when you are so innocent, how to um, deal with these circumstances and come out the other end stronger yeah. than before. Um, wow. so a lot of people have said that it is like a coming of age film, which we didn't actually realize until we watched the film. We were like, oh yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, are we seeing some of Machiavelli's uh, uh, philosophies playing out in real life at the moment with the death of the queen? 
Well, I mean, it's I I don't want to get too political because it is always up for debate. But um, I think events like the Queen's passing do definitely bring um, these aspects of our um, monarchy into light. Mm -hmm. um, I think it is more interesting to see how um, our actual governments are treating people and especially young people right now when it comes to our liberties and our freedoms and how um and sort of especially with COVID there was at the time that we were making the film it was a really tumultuous time because our freedoms were being taken right in front of us um and some people were agreeing with it some people weren't um and it was really interesting to see those conversations and to see those debates and to see um how the um certain uh uh what's the word um not companies but um like media outlets and such were um presenting these these ideas and these issues to the public um always i think what um uh one of the great things that machiavelli did Machiavelli did bring up when in his book is that um, influence is always subtle mm -hmm. and it's always <laughs> through subtle choices mm -hmm. that influence is the most um, is the most effective mm -hmm. um, and I think if you were to look in terms of our um, government's influence over a long period of time on a grand scale, that happens a lot in healthy ways and in unhealthy ways. Um, it, and, and what Cheripet is about and what Cheripet is saying at the end of the day is that it's up to us to make sure that um, these monarchs and these powers are kept accountable. Yeah. And it is our responsibility at the end of the day to make sure that power isn't um power isn't um taken too far and isn't exploited yes yes you're listening to the cinema australia podcast on apple podcasts soundcloud or cinemaaustralia.com.au um, this is what I find the most important about these podcasts and these kind of film interviews is to hear these stories behind the making mm. of these movies and, um, you know, to have the filmmaker explain it. Um, but but here's a question for you. When I think of Cherubhead, uh, you know, and your filmmaking style and aesthetics, mm. my mind is drawn to the films of uh, Sofia Coppola. Uh, oh, I'm not comparing you to Sophia, but, yeah. but I do remember reading an interview where she said that she prefers audiences to develop their own understandings of her films mm -hmm. rather yeah. than dictating to the audience uh, when significance exists within them. And, you know, you've just explained all of that there, but you can't expect an audience to pick up on all of that. Um, Gosh, no. You know, <laughs> obviously not everyone is going to understand it. Um, yeah. Would you agree to uh, Sophia's approach to filmmaking and many other filmmakers who, who did Yeah, yeah, you know, long many other filmmakers, here. sure. Yeah. Um, no, you were, you were actually spot on that. Like that, that is that is my entire understanding of film mm -hmm. and it's it's actually my entire understanding of art like yeah. you're going to have the exact same set of circumstances when two different people are looking at a painting yeah. and two different people have two completely different perceptions of that painting or of music or of anything um when it comes to viewing art um you only have a certain amount of control as an artist as mm -hmm. to what you can create and um the the beauty of film and the reason why i love film so much and I love art so much is that as an audience 
audience member, as a viewer, you are not coming to watch the film um, alone. You are coming to view that film with all of your memories, mm. all of your life experiences, mm. all of your values and all of your perceptions and all of those beautiful things are being projected and they are dancing with the film's ideas to create your interpretation of what that film is and that's what I really love and that's why I love chucking in all of these little visual details that sometimes they don't mean anything Mm -hmm. but I know that there may be an instance where someone walks into a cinema and they watch the film and they see that thing and they go oh my gosh, that really resonates with me. Yeah. And and we have no clue why. <laughs> um, and I will, we will never know how that feels to that person, but because of maybe an experience or something that's happened to them that is associated with that thing or that image, they are going to have such a strong emotional reaction that they're going to take away from that that's going to be special for them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about film as a gift for people. Um, I definitely when people say that they didn't resonate with the film or they didn't like parts of the film and they liked other parts I'm never um, I've I'm grateful in that I'm never um, truly offended by that because I know that at the end of the day um, we all live such complex lives and there are so many people that live so many different lives it's going to be impossible to make a film that every single person can relate to and in a way that's gorgeous Um, because it just shows how much diversity and how much beauty there is in storytelling and how almost technically every story you could ever create is going to resonate with at least one person yes yes that's right that's right exactly um i just want to go back to machiavelli for a moment there where did did your interest uh, in machiavelli come about um yeah so the machiavelli came from my interest in philosophy um so again if we go back to that the weird art but also analytical space. I was exploring both worlds and I really loved the, um, when I was reading books by like John Locke and um, Rousseau and all of these other philosophers, I was um, very moved by their ideas. And I, I got very, I became very passionate about the ideas and I love, I just wanted to try and bring these ideas to screen mm-hmm. because stories are always told from an emotional perspective and I wanted to try and tell well they're not always told from an emotional perspective but it's just it's what you know is most commonly done Mm -hmm. and um I but I was getting these strong emotional reactions from you know philosophical books which I'm I'm sorry I don't mean to offend but Mm -hmm. they're very boring in terms of their writing (laughs) like they're not very you know dramatic and flowery and poetic um and so that really inspired me um the fact that I could get something so emotional from something that seemed so factual and um I was in my philosophy class and we were starting to talk about power and um Machiavelli was brought up and so um from then it was just an interest in looking into um his ideas and finding out what really fascinated me was the fact that some people um like his philosophies can work for both fascism and democracy Mm. I was really fascinated by that because that then says to me okay it's not about the politics about it's about the humans and that's what um 
I think Machiavelli does a really great job of in his writing. It's um, about pointing out how humans react to things and how humans respond to things and how you can use that um, to be able to uh, make people love or hate you. <laughs> mm, yes. um, which is why I was much more emotion. I was really interested in Machiavelli over the other philosophers because they didn't quite have that level of um, juicy film content potential that Machiavelli <laughs> yes, had. Yes. And, and I can really see the, I can really see all of these ideas coming out in Cherubed. That's for sure. Beautiful. Um, how long was uh, was Cherubed in development before you started shooting it? Yeah, gosh. Um, so I had the ideas in November. And then I wrote the script in December, Jen, and then we st- and then we started filming in April. Um, so it was very quick. <laughs> Did you do? Um, were there many drafts of the script? There were three. Um, I didn't have I because I had just come out of high school. I obviously was not a part of any sort of industry, yeah. so I I didn't really have anyone other than my friends who could peer read it um, and give me feedback. So, you know, I I showed it to my friends and they thought, yeah, that's cool. And then <laughs> I had a read of it. I had another read of it and I did another draft. And then I was like, oh, that's cool. Let's make it. Yeah. Um, so it um, definitely didn't have as much, you know, it didn't, it didn't have very many drafts. And um, I would actually like I would love if I do get a career in film I would love to return to that script Mm. and um maybe get another a couple more people on board to see okay I had these ideas can we refine them can we make them can we turn them into something beautiful I would love for something like that to happen down the track Mm. um just to show I think like my journey as a filmmaker um, I think that would be really fun and that would be something really interesting to do. Yeah, but, when, when you were writing the script, did you have any uh, actors in mind for your character who who is the matriarch here? Uh, you um, know, did you have any, like, uh, 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 fantasy casting? Oh, fantasy casting, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had I had a whole heap of fantasy casting um, and I really wanted Hugo Weaving to play the man. Um, oh, yes. But I obviously like and I did try really (laughs) oh yeah I found out who his casting agent was and I contacted the casting agent and the casting agent was like no (laughs) (laughs) really really Um, that's interesting it's fair but you know I tried yeah yeah, no no harm in giving it a I saw Hugo Weaving was doing all of these cool like Australian productions and so I thought oh surely he'd be interested in like a cool film about power dynamics um but he never saw the script so that's maybe uh you know when you revisit it in the future he could be somebody uh maybe he was definitely on (laughs) my fantasy cast for yeah. sure <laughs> um uh, can you uh, can you take us back to the first day uh, on set for you um, you come mm. across as being very confident uh, you know I've met you a few times now and you have this aura of confidence about you but um mm. stepping onto set for the first day did did yeah. uh, you know things like imposter syndrome kick in at all and, and things like that 
Um, what was really beautiful and really I'm really grateful about for the Cherapeg cast and crew was that we were all young people, um, all of us, and it was all our first feature film. So um, uh, obviously our cast, our main cast, we were all under, we were all 18 and then Angie was 13. And then um, we had, you know, uh, people 16 um 21 I think the oldest was 25 so it was it was all young people and um we were all nervous <laughs> um because but we were all in the same boat and that was really um that really did not it actually brought us together and it didn't make anyone feel like they were left out everyone felt okay well we're all equally nervous so that's a good thing <laughs> I'm not I'm not left out um and so it was actually really fun um and really great for us I remember the first take and um I remember the first uh take of the first shot and everyone was just so tight everyone was so tense um and you could just you could just feel the energy in the room and everyone was just so nervous so after the first take I was like okay everybody let's just stop and we did some we did some deep meditative breaths all together and then after a few minutes I was like all right let's now do the second take and I think we all came together in that moment yeah. and I think we all understood what the project was and the fact that we were all feeling this nervous energy. And so when we did the second take, it was my already miles better than the first one. And I think that just sent morale through the roof and we were just on a high ever since then. What was the scene? Um, it was the scene where um, Sophie comes into the bedroom and then uh, Ellie says, there's only one bed. Yes. Um, yeah, that was that was the first scene that we oh, shot. Interesting. interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. Obviously, uh, listeners will understand that once they actually see the film. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us about working with these young actors and preparing them for their roles. Uh, because yeah. you all have to go to some dark places here, especially yourself and, and Nicola. Uh, can yeah. you tell us about working with these, uh, you know, great young yeah. actors? Oh, they were fantastic. I was so, I really lucked in mm. um, getting getting them on board, uh, especially Angie. She is so talented mm. for her age um, and her ability to bring out those performances. Um, and she really did when she, so originally um, they said no to the film. Oh, really? And then um, a couple of weeks later, I emailed them again and I was like, I'm sorry, I know you said no, but you need to be in this film. <laughs> And I sent them the script and then Angie read the script and she emailed me and um, her and her mom, Mel, were like, we're going to travel as much as we can. We're going to do as much as we can to be a part of this film because it is insane. Yeah. And um, Angie really jumped at all of this. Like usually when people see scenes filled with dialogue, because the whole film is basically just dialogue, yes, yes. Um, lots of dialogue, lots of crying, lots of emotion. People shy away from that. Yeah. But it was so beautiful to see Angie's eyes light up and for her to say, this is the role that I have always wanted. <laughs> um, 
And so she just, with every single scene, she just grew and she just became more and more um, emotionally involved and um, like more understanding of the character. She never faltered. Mm -hmm. And it was by the time we had that final scene, the, the jar scene, when we had that at the end of the shoot, she was just so in her element that I basically didn't have to do anything from a director's standpoint. Mm. I just had to look at her. I had to say, you know what to do? Mm. <laughs> and then she'd chuck in her eye drops and then she'd ball her eyes out. Um, <laughs> and she loved every moment. She yeah. really did. Yeah. Um, as for Nicola, we, um, she was very nervous, which I'm sure like, um, as you're saying, like, Sophie is a very complex character and her character journey isn't a typical character journey um, in that um, Ellie, uh, I, I'm not sure if I can spoil, I, I, won't, I won't spoil too much, um, but uh, Sophie's character doesn't go the way that we expect it to, right? Yeah. And she was nervous about portraying this and portraying it in the way that I wanted so um what we did and it was during lockdowns as well so we couldn't meet up <laughs> um so what we did which really helped was we had a lot of zoom calls and we went through every single line in the script before we were about to film it and we unpacked the dialogue and we said okay what are you really saying in this scene and I think by being able to do that and taking that time, Nicola was able to um, grow and thrive in the character mm. because she just totally has the look, right? Yes. <laughs> she really does just have the look. And um, even when the camera wasn't rolling, she was still doing things that were very Sophie-esque. Yeah, good. That's great. It was great. She was going and, method. You know, we, pardon? She was going method. Exactly right. Well, I think it was just, I hate to pat myself on the back, but she really is just like naturally a very Sophie-esque character, not in terms of being a mess, yeah. but in terms of not caring, being quite chilled and laid back and keeping everyone, um, keeping everyone in good spirits which is, which is very Sophie. Yeah. Um, it's about reminding people how great life is and how great it is to be you yeah. which um Nicola does naturally have in her approach to life and in her way of talking and being with people so yeah. um it it was a challenge for everyone because as I said it was everyone's first feature film but all things considered um Nicola and Angie did such a great job yeah and it's terrific to hear it sounds like you're you know what's been labeled as an actor's director and I think uh, actors, directors mm. are the ones who do do the best job um, because Fantastic. it is a, it is a collaborative experience. Um, exactly I, right. And I, 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 sorry, you no, go. No, no. Um, at the end of the day, stories are um, storytelling. If you think back to um, you know when it's all just people around a campfire keeping each other entertained, or whether mm. it's um, Dreamtime stories, it's all people telling other people it's it's storytelling in its essence is people yeah, yeah and um I think the best what I have learned so far as a director that is really um which I really value is knowing that at the end of the day um performance is what matters yes yeah 
Um, I, I do just want to make a statement here, and this isn't a question, um, but, uh, you know, Angie is so good in this film. She's absolutely terrific. She she beams this energy um, of, of a great actor. But uh, the scenes between yourself and Nicola are quite extraordinary. You two bounce your tension and, and hatred off one another so well. It, it, the, the scenes between you two are incredible. You know, and then you've got uh, Angie who's absorbing it all and trying to, to keep the peace. So you're all yeah. so good. And, and if... If there's anyone out there who's questioning watching this film, but you appreciate good performances, then yeah, watch it just for the performances. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. That uh, was the thing that you can do without a budget, you know? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> that's right, yeah. Um, yeah. A, a lot of indie films completely bypass a decent colour palette and mm. uh, most probably, um, you know, don't understand the importance of it. Can you tell us about the colour palette you've chosen for this film? Yes. So um, we had our main colours, which were yellow, blue and red. Um, And I knew from the get-go that um, it was going to be a challenge to try and convince people that the film is being set in a rich person's house when it's being actually made in a suburban home. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So um, the way that we decided to go about that was with colour. And so I had a look at um, at uh, palaces and old older um, houses that were designed for the royal family and for these higher wealthier classes, and we used that co- those colours in the space to be able to try and help people associate um the colors and the color space with that class Mm -hmm. um it was actually interesting to learn how much um wealth and class is is associated with color Mm -hmm. um through the film and um with things like teacups and um uh like gold and all these sorts of things so um that was a big part of our production design but also in terms of the color symbolism we had um the blue and the red which symbolized if we go back to machiavelli's book um the beast and the man and he says in the book that it is um, a matter of balancing the two um sometimes you need to be a beast sometimes you need to be a man and so marie has these two rings on either um, of her fingers and one is blue and one is red and you see her in the film she starts out she starts out blue calm and then by the end she's red and then you see the opposite happen for ellie so at the start ellie is this wild free um orphan and then by the end she's this blue so it's um playing around with those colors um to create a space that is going to be believable for the audience on a budget but also is going to because there's so much happening in the film um i thought it would be nice to use color as a way to guide people through um their character journeys and who they're turning into as people yeah, wonderful, just wonderful. And I wanted to use that question as a launching pad um, for my next series of questions about the use of your parents' house for the making of this film. Yes. It was your parents' <laughs> house, right? I believe yeah. some uh, minor renovations uh, took place during film. There were some minor renovations. <laughs> um, so my dad hadn't read the script and I, uh, he was basically just trusting me. <laughs> and I, I said to him, 
okay, dad, we need a door right here. And um, what it was, was that we had the hallway, which you'll see in the film, and then the hallway turns left. And then that goes out into the rest of the house. But um, we couldn't use the rest of the house for the film. So I needed um, something to cut off um, that section of the space to this section of the space. So we did do a couple of, we got some, um, uh, just some boards from Bunnings <laughs> and um, some some wood. And then we uh, just quickly made two little walls. And then we got a free door from my grandma who lives on a property and she just has this shed filled with stuff. Um, I guess what we're learning from this podcast is my family just likes hoarding things, <laughs> <laughs> which is great for a filmmaker. Absolutely fantastic. Oh, yeah. Free resources. Like, Exactly right. I'm like, I need a door. And Granny's like, yeah, I have one. <laughs> so we take the door um, and then we hinge it onto these two walls. And then ta-da, we've got the the start to our house. Um, but what was really funny was that we, so the, the scene where Sophie arrives, um, we have Sophie on one side of the house and then Marie on the inside of the house. Yeah. And we had two over-the-shoulder shots. And so we could get the over-shoulder shot of Marie because that shows into the house, mm. into the set, right? But we couldn't do the over-the-shoulder shot of Sophie because yeah. that would show the fridge and the rest of the suburban home. <laughs> so... After we shot all those scenes, we had to take down the door. <laughs> we had to travel it an hour into Armadale. <laughs> and then we had to rehinge it onto this, um, onto the side of this empty barn um, because we needed the exterior. <laughs> so then we shot the other over-the-shoulder shot of Sophie standing in the middle of this property. So that was really difficult, mm -hmm. but it's it's always so much fun to, yeah. to see that scene and to see the shots just blend together as if they're in one location, knowing. It's seamless. It's absolutely yeah. seamless. <laughs> <laughs> knowing that we had to move this door all the way over to this other location to reattach it just to get the shot. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, that, that's the true essence of independent filmmaking exactly, right Exactly, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I've got a final question about Cheruphead here. Uh, yeah. what, what would you say uh, has been the most important thing that you've learnt about yourself as a filmmaker throughout the making of, of Cheruphead? Mm, um, I think I have already brought them up, but um, I think from me, from learning as a professional or as um like in terms of my um learning my development as a director I would say that it's definitely um valuing the actor's performances mm -hmm. so really focusing on the actor's performances and then letting the crew not micromanaging the crew let them letting them um achieve their visions achieve their goals and trusting them mm -hmm. was a really um important step for me which um, gladly it paid off in the best of ways. We had fantastic um, cinematography. We had fantastic sound. It was all, it all came together quite beautifully. And it was my job to focus and make sure that the performances were at the, 
standard that we needed them to be at for people to enjoy this film. Um, from a personal perspective, what I learned was don't act and direct. Mm. <laughs> and um, it was it was quite um, a relief when I was at Revelation International Film Festival. I got to speak with Hannah Barlow, who was the um, director of the co-director of Sissy. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and I noticed that she had also acted and directed <laughs> in the film. So one of the first things I asked her was, how did you find acting and directing? And she just shook her head and looked at me <laughs> and she's like, I'm not doing that again. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> you're not going to do that again. Because yeah. it's, it's, um, it's just completely contradictory where as a director you need to be completely in your head yeah. and then as an actor you need to be completely in your body and in your intuition and so when you're supposed to do both of those it just doesn't work yeah. at all um, so from a personal perspective that was my biggest takeaway from Cheruped. Oh that's that's fantastic and I'm, I'm so glad that you got to have a chat with um with Hannah and and I assume Kane as well who yeah who made yeah Kane as well yeah, yeah. and them, um yeah. that takes me to my uh next and final question actually because uh I end this podcast by asking the same question every time as as regular listeners will know and that is um I ask my guests whether they've seen any Australian films lately that have really stood out for them. And I'm mm. excited to ask you this question because I have seen you around at various film festivals over the last couple of months. So I know yeah. that you have, have seen some Australian films. Is there anything that's really stood out for you? I have. So Sissy was a, Sissy was a beautiful one. Mm. Um, and it was great because it was quite similar to Cherub Head in terms of its narrative structure yeah. um because you you've seen both of them right yeah you agree with me that they, yeah. they have quite um they are quite similar in terms of story mm. so that was um that was a great film to see one that um i did really love was by um uh there was the feature film by um uh matthew victor pastor oh yes that rev pencil to the jugular yes yeah um i really loved the energy in that film yeah. and i really loved the um the first half where it's just it's these moments where it, it, it literally just focused on the feeling of isolation yeah and did it in such a beautiful way that needed barely any dialogue, had such a beautiful, diverse cast and told these stories without without feeling a need to tell, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It was um, showing these stories with just the moments. There was no need for dialogue. There was no need for um, any sort of explanation. Mm -hmm. It was just, all right, we're going to be here. We're going to capture this moment. Yeah. And there's a there's a shot that really still sticks with me from that film, which was when there was a um, there was just it was just a shot of someone in a kitchen, and there was an ant on their shirt, and the ant was just walking around on their shirt, and the shot was just of the ant, mm. and I was so I was so pulled by that still, of that of that shot because I've never thought about an ant <laughs> if that makes sense yeah. like who cares about an ant it's a <laughs> tiny little being that just wanders around and that's its existence but it this film gave it importance mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden I was thinking why don't I care about ants and it spiraled into a 
<laughs> into a beautiful into a beautiful thought and into a beautiful moment. And I love it when films are able to create, especially indie films, because when we don't have the budgets, that's what we have to work with. Yeah. We have moments. We have everything that is happening around us. We have the people. We have the creatures. We have the plants. We have the sun. We have all of this nature. And especially in WA when we have all this beautiful nature, mm. we still have a lot to work with. And I love it when I see independent directors that are using that as a way to create to create beautiful moments that you just wouldn't get with a film with a budget. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah, I think you've just given the best answer ever to that question after almost uh, 90 episodes. <laughs> Usually when I speak to filmmakers, a lot of them will say that they've, you know, they've just been too busy to watch anything or they haven't seen anything. And, right. and you, you've gone quite deep there, which is just absolutely beautiful. It, it makes me excited to hear. And Matthew is uh, such an exciting filmmaker as well. He's he doing is. some terrific yeah. things. Um, yeah. Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. And uh, thank you thank very you. much for joining the Cinema Australia podcast. It was an absolute pleasure and it was great to talk to you about all these things. It's always great to chat with you, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Cinema Australia podcast. You can keep up to date with all the latest Australian film news, reviews, features and interviews at cinemaaustralia.com.au.